National African American Gun Association, President Philip Smith criticizes the ATF shakeup. Plus, new video in the Alec Baldwin shooting. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of Reload.com, where you can head on over and check out our membership options today. If you want to support our uh, sober, serious approach to firearms journalism, we are 100% reader-funded, independent publication that focuses on hard news reporting and analysis of the latest stories in guns throughout the country. Um, And this podcast here, we like to have on experts and people who are directly affected by uh, what's going on in the news, uh, newsmakers, if you will. And so this week we have uh, Philip Smith from uh, the National African-American Gun Association. Welcome. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be back and can't wait to talk today. So, Yeah, absolutely. Can you give people just a little bit more background about yourself for anyone who is listening might not have um, heard of you before? Yeah, sure. I'm originally from California. Um, I started the organization National African Gun Association, otherwise known as NAGA, back in 2015. Uh, We have grown to 45,000 members nationally. We have over 120 chapters. Uh, We have over 5,000 what we call nest uh, groups, folks that are kind of preppers uh, in case of emergencies, which is a really good thing, especially now. And we're just very, very proactive in the Second Amendment 2A community. So I'm very proud to lead the organization and hopefully we can continue to grow and provide, you know, our perspective on firearms and help out in this, you know, this journey that we're on. Certainly. All right, so you're up to 45,000 now. That's uh, yeah, 45,000. Yeah. Quite a lot of growth over the last what, two years, right? Yeah. I mean, COVID really was like I tell everyone, was a game changer for us. We were growing pretty steadily anyway, but it really pushed us. And really, we had the introduction of members, we call new members, that were typically kind of on the on the border. Previously, when it came to guns, they were kind of like, I don't know if I should have a gun, or they would even be anti-gun. But when COVID came into play, it really um, forced them to really take a serious look at their own safety, their own security. And a lot of those folks jumped over and joined our organization in, in the process of buying a gun. So I think that's a very good thing. Yeah, certainly. We, we did a whole podcast on that, really. Uh, the, la- the last episode that you were on, so people should definitely check out that conversation because I think um, the growth of, of minority gun ownership in the United States is such a huge story overall yeah. to guns in America. Um, and so we, we talked at length about that. But this uh, this episode, I want to talk about what's going on with the ATF, right? So there's yeah. a, a new nominee that uh, President Biden has put up to uh, attempt again to get a permanent nominee in that role, his his previous one failed, David Shipman, and now he's mm-hmm. nominated uh, Stephen Dettelbach. But there's uh, some concerns that your organization had with this process and with, as well, the demotion of the acting director, which Correct. recently happened. Uh, Marvin Richardson, who's uh, you know obviously African American career uh, ATF official, um, and he's been moved from acting director down to acting deputy director. Yeah, uh, and you, uh, you guys had concerns about that. Can you just tell us a little bit? Sure, sure. And for your audience, um, the thing is really troubling uh, that you're looking at a career um, federal employee who has worked his way up from the ground level, being a field agent, all the way up to being a director of the ATF. Not an easy maneuver for anyone, particularly an African American. He's, you know, he's avoided the landmines career career wise and has moved all the way up. Has been really received by all rank and file based on what I've heard from secondary and, and um, other folks that he's well-liked. He's balanced. He's not biased in his perspective. He can work with uh, ammo companies. He can work with gun manufacturers. He has a very balanced, like he should, approach to dealing with those folks that he's going to be interacting with. He's not a political uh, appointee. He's a year, uh, 30-year veteran of the, of the ATF and is well-viewed by everyone. And we just feel it's troubling very troubling at a very core level when you have an African-American who symbolizes everything that we feel that this country represents. You work hard, you work yourself up by your bootstraps, no excuses, all the way to the highest level um, within the ATF. And now that just gets jerked away from you for no reason other than you want to place a political appointee, plain and simple, in that place to run the ATF 
um, I think, in, in a very biased way to set up legislation and, and, and rules that are going to be somewhat anti-gun or very anti-gun, is troubling on both those uh, issues, racially, as well as um, the, the political aspect of it, um, really gutting this guy out and really taking away a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that he probably will not have again. Right. So, so you're concerned both about the fact that he's been passed over twice for white nominees Correct. and also that those nominees have a track record of supporting, uh, you know, gun, stricter gun control. Oh, um, absolutely. Legislation. Anti-gun. They're, they're, they are, to me, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, they're they're anti-2A. They're anti-Second Amendment. And that is troubling in itself because that person is going to be over the ATF, alcohol, tobacco and firearms. Why would you want to place somebody in that position that would be truly um, um a negative for the organization and make it very difficult for those uh, folks who run gun companies and ammo companies and have other companies related to firearms. Why would you want to do that? And, and the only reason I can think, you know, obviously I'm not in the White House or have anything, um, no dog in the fight. But to me, this basic observation is you have an agenda and that agenda is to push across um, a very anti um, environment for for gun for gun manufacturers. And I think that's very, very troubling. Yeah, certainly the White House has um, touted Steve Dettelbach's uh, career as a U.S. attorney before, um, you know, he he, he did eventually leave to go and, and run for attorney general in Ohio. But but he did serve uh, 20 years as as U.S. attorney. They they uh, are putting him forth as somebody who can help fight the crime uh, wave that we've we've seen, uh, especially in major cities when it comes to uh, the murder rates increasing. Um, do you uh, feel that that's uh, not really what they're trying to accomplish with his pick? No, I think it's a veil for what they really are trying to do. I think they're, they've got him in the position. They're going to push that agenda of him being an attorney general, but the real purpose of him is being there to really bottleneck the ATF um, as being an effective uh, resource for gun manufacturers and ammo companies, plain and simple. Okay. And then as far as the racial concerns go, um, you know, you've seen uh, two other uh, African-American groups speak out uh, about the ATF situation. One um, was uh, Noble, which uh, represents, uh, you know, professional law enforcement uh, agents who are African-American. And they uh, are supportive of Steve Dettelbach's um, nomination. They haven't spoken to the situation with Marvin Richardson, but they're supportive of uh, his nomination. They, they want to see him confirmed. This is a group that's also worked, um, of course, closely with uh, every town, the gun control agents uh, uh, group. Do, what are your thoughts on on their position? They, they want them confirmed. I I don't want to demonize any organization, particularly an Afri other, another African-American organization. And that's what Noble is. Sure. Um, but I think their perspective is inherently wrong. Um, I think it's ta it takes bold initiative and bold leadership to look at something and not just toe the line. Um, and say, you know what, we're not saying this guy is the evil incarnate, you know, walking around the devil himself, but he truly is not the best fit at this time, mm -hmm. especially when you have a qualified African-American male who knows his job. And I mean, he knows the job. I've heard this gentleman talk. He knows what he's doing at the highest level, very articulate, very smooth, very, very um, sophisticated on all the nuances of the position. So why would you want to take someone that's in that position after 30 years of hard work and gut him down and make him deputy director as opposed to director of the ATF. To me, it's a moment the, the country is missing. To, it, it's a feel good moment that we could have to show folks if you work hard, do the right thing, come to work every day, putting all you have out on the, on the table that you can rise to do anything that you want in your particular um, career path. He is a living example of that. Why would you wanna take that away particularly with an administration that touts diversity, the particular administration that touts that we're looking at different folks doing really great things. He's the embodiment of that. So why would you want to take that away from him? I, I just don't understand it. Okay. And so the other group that's spoken out as well um, is the, the Black Agents and Professionals Law Enforcement Association, yep. which works directly with uh, the ATF to help um, foster the careers of, of African-American agents. Uh, now they they've spoken out in support of, of Marvin Richardson after his demotion was announced. They didn't um, they didn't necessarily critique uh, the move or uh, the president or, or 
Steve Dettelbach's nomination or anything along those lines, mm -hmm. but they did speak out. Um, and, and here's a direct quote from them. The men and women of ATF have been fortunate to have Marvin as he's affectionately known as its acting director. He is a career employee and uh, servant leader who has put the needs of the agency and country first and foremost. Uh, B-A-P-L-E-A -E commends acting director Marvin Richardson for his exemplary leadership to the ATF and his extensive service to the United States of America. Um, you know, they, they were sort of voicing their continuing support for him. Um, and, and so it uh, seemed to be, uh, obviously people can interpret it. They can read the full statement and interpret it the way right. they uh, want, but it certainly seems that maybe there's some reading between the lines that's necessary there, um, uh, that yeah. they're not happy about what's happened. Yeah, I, I think they're they're trying to be, do their very, very best of this really walking that thin line of, vo like you said, voicing their, their support, but at the same time, not trying to throw any, uh, negative views on the current administration because a lot of those folks are, you know, directly involved in in the administration right now. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes, as I said before, you have to be bold in your initiatives, bold in your statement and beliefs, and sometimes you have to ruffle feathers and say, you know, I see what you're doing, but this is wrong in its essence, in its core. It just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't look right when you have somebody that's put in that kind of work, that kind of effort. I think the administration, being the ATF administration, would be better served. In terms of continuity, in terms of rank and file morale, in terms of the of the organization being viewed as a fair place to work for everybody, that everyone has a chance to rise to the highest level if you were to keep him in place as opposed to removing him without any real cause or demoting him, rather. Um, I just don't think it's a good thing to do. Obviously, there's been a lot of public criticism of uh, Marvin Richardson from uh, gun control supporters uh, in the lead up to this decision to demote him. Uh, mm -hmm. You had uh, a, t a piece in the New York Times where um, he was labeled as somebody who was um, pump pumping the brakes on President Biden's uh, agenda as far as guns are concerned. Um, and, and you had uh, Newtown Action Alliance, which is one of the um, gun control groups, a smaller group, but they publicly spoke out uh, attacking uh, Richardson. Do you feel there's any validity to those complaints, you know, that, that he was uh, um, too close to the industry, he's too friendly to groups like the National Shooting Sports Foundation or the gun manufacturers? Uh, is that a valid uh, critique or a valid reason for why he was passed over and demoted, you think? I don't, I don't think it's valid. Show me the proof. What did he do that was, quote unquote, bias to a particular uh, industry that that was definitely wrong or over the line show something other than saying he's you know he's over overly zealously uh promoting uh, firearms i don't see that show me something in black and white or all of us you know we're all adults that gives me information and proof to back up your statement anybody can make a statement i can say the, the moon is green doesn't make it green right uh, I mean, I guess the uh, main critiques that were in that New York Times article were of uh, the fact that he went and spoke at uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation's uh, trade show, uh, SHOT Show, in January. And then uh, there were complaints about how how long uh, it was taking to finalize President Biden's um, ghost gun kit ban, uh, which which came out earlier this month. Do right. uh, you think that's unfair? I mean, obviously... Uh, ATF's been going to SHOT Show for, for years before. Yeah, I mean, I, I just went to SHOT Show for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And you need to have a working relationship with the government for all those gun manufacturers. It's a natural conversation that has to take place anyway. Him speaking at the conference or the, the SHOT Show, to me, is a good thing. It says both are talking, both, you know, um, various parties are talking to one another in a healthy you know, productive way. Doesn't mean he's biased. Doesn't mean he's doing his job as a government agent, as a government representative. Um, I just see it very, very different. Um, are they trying to say he's not supposed to go? Is he not supposed to talk to those folks? I mean, certainly some of these gun control groups do really believe that there shouldn't be uh, any sort of friendly relationship between the ATF and the industry. And uh, I mean, that seems to be sort of a philosophical difference because you hear uh, a lot from People inside the ATF, uh, at least in my experience, talking to them, that it's actually they they view the relationship with the industry as vital. But 
but certainly the um, the other view from from gun control advocates is that the ATF doesn't do enough to you know go after bad apple gun dealers and, and so forth. They don't they don't strictly police the industry as much as they should, um, and so I guess that's the the main criticism against against Richardson. Yeah, I, I even I'll even add this. I think a lot of the anti gun. This is my un technical statement. I think that uh, they feel that the ATF almost in fact makes laws, but the ATF doesn't make laws. They enforce the laws. Um, and they're watching the interaction, the ATF with these gun manufacturers, and they're just livid because they believe, I think, that there should not be a, even a conversation. It should be just handing, handing down these verdicts day after day, month after month about what they can't do. And we're going to take this away from you. We're going to make it more restrictive. We're going to make it harder for folks to buy guns, to make guns, even think about guns. And that's just not the role of the ATF, nor should it ever be. They should be an unbiased, neutral party working to represent the government in a positive way, interacting with firearm companies and those folks that represent those organizations. And I think Marvin Richardson has done a great job of doing that, if allowed to continue. So it's definitely pure politics for me. Okay, interesting. And so um, it seems like uh, the main critique you have thus far of of um, uh, Steve Dettelbach's nomination is this process where Marvin Richardson was not really considered and in fact was sort of right. punished, it seems like. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, it reminds me a bit of, uh, well, one, I guess, can you uh, just speak to um, whether you have concerns about Steve Dettelbach uh, as far as uh, um, any, any um, complaints of racial I concerns? I think you qualified for the position. I, I will, I, I'll go back to Marvin Richardson in, in relation to him. Why would you replace somebody that has a, a vast of, uh, wealth of information and knowledge, intimate information about how to run the agency with someone that has no information, literally coming from the outside, is a political appointee, pure and simple. Why would you want to place that person in there? As I said before, I don't think he's the devil, but he certainly is not qualified to me to be in the position. And I'll, I'll end it with this. I don't think the current administration, and I'm trying to be as neutral as possible because we are a organization that's not to the left or right. But to me, when it comes to the Second Amendment and someone attacking the Second Amendment subtly or overtly, we need to speak out. So why would you place someone in there when everyone else that was presented prior to him was truly anti-gun, be it a Chipman? I don't think the administration has veered very far from that. The person that we're looking at now, Dettelbach, is probably in the same vein, just as I said before, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. A little more quieter about it, just a little more subtle, but the same end result is going to be expected from him. So I'm, I'm not with the uh, with that appointment at all. And are, are you basing that off of uh, essentially his positions that he took while he was running for attorney general back in 2018, uh, Dettelbach? Yeah, somewhat. But more, more importantly, I look at where he's coming from and who's who has presented him to the ATF, in other words, the current administration. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to place someone in there that's going to be pro-gun. They they have not been pro-gun on anything that I've seen thus far. I don't think they're going to change with him being uh, selected for the position. Uh, now, Dettelbach had um, uh, been uh, chosen to uh, essentially be recommended for renomination to uh, the U.S. attorney in Northern District of Ohio last year by uh, Senator Sherrod Brown uh, out there in Ohio. He's a Democrat from Ohio. Uh, but that nomination ran into a similar, I guess, controversy uh, where um, civil rights activists were unhappy with how that pick was made uh, because effectively it was, it was done without uh, any sort of process to consider other candidates, especially minority candidates. And so you had um, Samaria Rice, who's Tamir Rice's mother, uh, and you had a, a group of uh, African-American uh, lawyers who spoke out against Dettelbach's renomination for that position. Um, uh, and then apparently it was he was never recommended after that point. Uh, and, and so it, it seemed to have essentially sunk his chances for renomination in, in that case. Mm -hmm. uh, do you one? Do you do you agree that there's a parallel here? And two, do you think the outcome should be the same? Do you want to see his nomination withdrawn? I want his nomination withdrawn, and it's definitely repetition of what happened previously in Ohio. 
it's almost to the letter, but at a, at a lower level within the government, you have a selection of a gentleman, uh, Mr. Dadelbach, who is who is being appointed by a certain aspect of the Democratic Party, uh, a representative, and he's in a position where no one else is really considered of color. That in itself is very troubling as an African-American uh, male. Um, there needs to be a wealth of people coming in that have diverse backgrounds that need to be truly considered for the job on every level. And it's, to me, it's like a duplication of what they did previously, but only at a higher level when it comes to the ATF. So I was against the uh, selection of him in Ohio, and I'm definitely against the uh, selection of him for the uh, ATF position. You know, I think that I think that makes it pretty clear. You, got, you uh, don't want to see... I guess, what would your ideal out, uh, outcome be? You don't want to see Dettelbach... Uh, uh, his nomination to go through. Uh, do you want to see Marvin Richardson put up as a, a permanent director? Reinstate Marvin Richardson as the uh, director of the ATF, not deputy mm -hmm. director, but the director. Give him his position back. Apologize or not, doesn't matter, as long as he has his position back and remove Dettelbach completely from the consideration for everything. I would be satisfied with that and that but only. Do you want to see Richardson nominated as the permanent uh, director? Yes, not the intro, the permanent. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. I see. So you want him? Uh, that is that is your your ultimate uh, outcome that you'd prefer here is uh, Dettelback's nomination pulled. Richardson replaces him as the the permanent director nominee, um, which uh, you think he would get fifty votes if he was put up? Be close. I, I would hope so. I would hope yeah. so. He get more than fifty. I mean, he's as I said before, based on what I've heard and read a lot in a lot of phone calls that I've been involved with over the last two weeks. He's a well-liked person and respected with the rank and file. Those are the folks that work underneath him, that report to him, black or white, male or female. So if you have that type of support, um, regardless of uh, political leanings, why would you want to take him out of that position? To me, he's the ideal person to keep in the position. Continuity, mor morale. I think, as I said before, he's, he's the right guy for the job. Just give him the job on a permanent basis, not interim. Interim should not be attached to his name in any way, shape, or form anymore. Well, I think that that gives us a good bottom line as far as uh, what you guys are, are looking for in the ATF situation. I want to talk a little bit about um, permitless carry. Uh, you you live in Atlanta, right? Yeah. Um, Georgia just passed permitless carry, uh, and I know that there um, was some confusion over uh, your position on. Permitless carry. So I wanted to give you uh, just a, a little bit of a platform here to to talk through exactly, um, you know, what you and and Naga feel about uh, permitless carry and uh, whether you support the policy and um, and perhaps whatever concerns you might have about implementation or enforcement. Officially, Naga is a pro to a Second Amendment organization, and we definitely back the constitutional carry amendment that or legislation that's been passed by of the governor in the state of Georgia. We are a gun organization. We support anything that's gonna give us more rights or easier access or path to exercise our second amendment rights. So we were overjoyed, very excited from an official standpoint. Um, what was troubling to me, I had an interview. So I've had, probably had over 700 interviews in the last you know, eight or eight or nine, eight, seven years. And I had an interview about two weeks ago with a local station, I'm not gonna repeat their name. Don't any lawsuits coming my way. And uh, the gentleman had a very easygoing interview, asked me what I thought, told him um, and nothing out of, you know, out of the ordinary. But when I looked at the title and I have a process, I typically ask for the title of the piece that you're going to do, uh, going to title, you know, in my interview for uh, or with. And also I like to green light the final view or, you know, uh, summary of it before it goes out on the out in the, uh, the on the internet, social media, and I failed to do that. And when I, if because if I had done my normal process, I would have seen that he put for the title "Pro Gun Group Comes Out Against Constitutional Carry in the State of Georgia." I would have put a stop on that immediately and told him to recant everything and just cancel the interview and not authorize anything. But I didn't do that. I was just, I was tired. End of the day, I had an interview with a major uh, national organization earlier in the, in the morning and working all day. And I just, for just a moment, for the first time in seven years, I didn't check and, uh, you know, I got bit in the butt about it. And um, I called the station immediately, called the managing editor um, and the, the supervisors and all that good stuff to have them change the title. They changed the title, 
But by that time, it was too late. You know, millions have seen the, the information. It was just all across the internet, people taking screenshots. But I want to clearly state to everything and everyone that's listening to me right today, we are a pro-Second Amendment organization. We believe in constitutional carry, always have, always will. Um, anytime you support constitutional carry, what you're really saying is that you embrace the reality of the Second Amendment real time. Because when you buy a gun in Georgia now, there's no delay. If you want to carry it out to go to the park, if you want to go jogging, you can buy that gun and put it on your person and feel that much safer. And, I, and this is God's honest truth. I can't tell you, I had three or four phone calls from black women who have said, you know, Philip, I feel a little safer now because I can go buy a gun. I don't have to delay uh, my, my security. Some of these women have been uh, victims of uh, domestic violence. Some of them have been robbed. Now they can, they can have that gun with them immediately and at least have a fighting chance. So the constitutional carry fast tracks that allows people, men and women, to have that access to a gun that much faster. So we are total support of it. We, we love the implementation and we'll definitely back um, that particular legislation. Okay. Um, and, and so I think the piece had noted that, um, you know, there are concerns about um, training when uh, training requirements are removed from, you know, alongside the permitting requirement. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Anytime anybody, anybody buys a gun in our organization, we focus training and safety and more training and more safety, and more training, more safety. It's something that's the core of our organization. That's why we've never really had any issues with training our folks because it's at the core of what we do. And when I talk to the gentleman, I let him know that, you know, long folks when they're buying these guns, they should go out and, and get training with that. Um, if you do, you're going to put yourself in a much better position. The worst thing you can do is buy a gun and, and not get some kind of official training with, with a certified instructor, you know, USC, USCCA, NRA, whatever, uh, or a NAG instructor. But that was the, the scope of it. Um, we believe that's the best way to go with training. And uh, anytime you buy a gun that you're familiar with or anything that you're not familiar with, um, become that gun should become a part of you, like the back of, like the back of your hand. So and that's what I was trying to state, and, and I, I I just talked about those particular points. Right, but you weren't saying that you uh, <clears throat> you weren't saying that you oppose uh, removing the the permitting requirement. No, okay, no way, shape, or form. No. And, and so, um, you know, obviously, a lot of people when they talk about permitless carry or constitutional carry, one of the uh, reasons that advocates support it is the idea of uh, the fa permitting requirements being inequitably applied that many people who are charged with the crime of uh, carrying without a permit uh, where that's the only crime uh, are have, are often you know um, minorities young black men in particular um, you saw this with uh, public defenders in Detroit came out and said 97 percent of the arrests made um, for Carrying without a permit, uh, where that was the only charge, were black men. Mm -hmm. um, you had public defenders in um, New York file uh, a brief in the Supreme Court case, Supreme Court gun carry case, uh, arguing effect effectively the same line about uh, the inequitable enforcement of these laws. What what is Naga's view on uh, on that as part of this uh, effort to? repeal permitting laws? One of the things that we do at NAGA, and we're very, very proud of, aside from physical training, one of the things that we really focus on our folks is education. Know the gun laws in your state, and they all vary from state to state for the most part. Some are identical, some most are not. One thing as a gun owner, and this is responsibility that you have, that, that, that I have as gun owners, is to know what we can and cannot do with that gun. If I am in the state of Georgia, I already know that I can open carry or conceal carry. I also know that I cannot go into a federal post office and carry mm -hmm. or any federal uh, parking lot. I know that because I've made myself aware and I've read the rules and the laws. So we have to be diligent as black folks or others to know the laws in which you uh, need to become very, very familiar with in your particular state. Right. Ignorance is not an excuse to the law. Sure. But uh, do you agree that these laws have been traditionally um, enforced more heavily against uh, uh, black men? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that permitless carry is a, a, a one of the solutions to that issue? I think when the, 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 the constitutional carry 
takes that whole argument and pushes it aside. You now have the right to carry the gun. And that's one of the reasons why we advocate for it and we love it because when you buy a gun in Georgia now, if I were to buy a gun, I don't have to worry about, I gotta wait 45 days, do my fingerprints, take a picture and all that other stuff. I get the right to carry my gun immediately. And that's why it's so important that Second Amendment advocates, folks like you and I, just regular folks, anytime we have an opportunity to have constitutional carry implemented in a new state, is that we push off our efforts and collectively make sure that happens because it avoids people getting arrested. It avoids that that you know that dilemma, you know, do I need to carry a gun or should I carry a gun or based on this particular state? So I think it's a good thing that we we back constitutional carry in every state that that we have left. Okay, um, and and along these lines, you know, obviously this this whole podcast has been uh, you know focused on on politics, um, yeah. certainly gun politics, but. But, uh, you know, Naga, I know that you guys had uh, been uh, really debating whether or not to even get involved in, in the political sphere yeah. uh, in recent years. Uh, do, should we expect to see more, uh, you know, political activism from from your group? One of the strengths of Naga, you know, the National African Gun Association thus far is that we have been able to attract people from both sides of the aisle, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Independents. Because when you come to NAG, you're not going to be given a political speech about how to dress, how to talk, who you should vote for, none of that. You're what we call a open tent, our large tent organization. Different types of people here with different initiatives, different goals. And that's a good thing. Um, we're going to give you a high five. We're going to give you a big hug. Having said that, people are also saying, Philip, NAGA. Things are getting so serious that we need to have a political perspective at some point. For us to do that, we would have to build another organization outside of NAGA to have that interaction on a political level. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks, I can tell you, want to have that conversation. They want to have a vehicle where they can say, you know what, we want to politically back particular people, our persons, our organizations. Um, thus far, we don't back politicians. We back policy, such as the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. such as social injustice, but we will not back a particular party. Um, that's what we are officially right now. In the future, that might change. Um, as I said before, things are getting very serious where people want to have a venue through NAGA where they are close to NAGA, where that 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 policy discussion can take place at a very intimate level. But for now, you're, you're focused more on issue advocacy and, and not Correct. so much on uh, political activism in the form of endorsing candidates or Correct. If it's related ads. to the Second Amendment, we're going to speak out on it. Okay. All right. Well, um, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your time to dive into these topics and, and get uh, Naga's point of view on, on what's happening here. Right. Uh, I think it's very valuable. So I uh, really, uh, really genuinely appreciate it. Where can people find uh, Naga if they're interested in joining or donating or Supporting sure, you. sure. They can go to our website at www.naaga.co. Just click on it, read information. We have a easy tab at the top. You can click on membership or donations. We'd love to have you um, wherever you are, wherever you're at. We have members in every state of the union. We have every type of person uh, to join our organization, black, white, Asian, Latino, or otherwise. Um, we're going to give you a high five. We're going to give you a big hug and say, welcome, brother, welcome, sister. And we think that uh, that's the way it should go. And uh, and people and there's local chapters where people can join up and yeah. go shoot down. Yeah. So about in every every state there's a chapter just about, and you can uh, connect with those folks that that are like you, like mine, if they want to learn about guns. If you don't want to talk about anything else and just want to learn how to shoot, you can do just that and feel very very comfortable. We make people feel comfortable. That that's one of the goals of the organization. Um, it's one thing to have a gun organization, but it's another thing to utilize that gun to be a rallying point to to embrace people to make them valued and i think we do a great job in doing that absolutely all right well we uh we will hopefully have you on again in the near future to talk uh about some more of the things that naga is up to um but for now we're going to head over to the the news segment so thank you again for for being with us thanks for having me thank you all right it's time for the weekly news update uh how are you doing this week steve Doing all right. How are you? It's been a busy week for you uh, out yeah. there in Colorado. That's right. It's been busy, staying staying very busy actually. But um, you know, uh, the news is keeping us busy as well. And it's a yes. big story that we got here from uh, the Alec Baldwin saga. Um, some new information has come to light uh, that kind of gives us a little more insight into what happened during that tragic incident on the Rust set. And you wrote a piece about it. So if you want to 
kind of tell us what we know now. Yeah, well, so the police released a, like a trove of new information, uh, videos and, and interviews that they had done uh, in the aftermath of that fatal shooting. And one of the videos in particular was was very revealing, uh, and that was the rehearsal shots of the scene uh, that led to the fatal shooting uh, of uh, cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of rest and also uh, injured the director as well uh, with with the same shot. Uh, But they released video from that scene where they were rehearsing the Alec Baldwin drawing his, his gun uh, in, in order to practice that scene, which I did now one thing to make clear here is that I, I talked to the Santa Fe County Sheriff's uh, office and they told me that that video is, does not include the actual fatal shot. Um, it kind of looks like it does at the end because the camera moves and stuff, but it, they told me that's not from, it doesn't actually capture the, the, the fatal shooting. So that's an important thing to note, but it does give us some really significant insight into how this all played out. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff up in the air. He claims he never pulled the trigger initially. Um, so I know we covered the various possibilities that that can go wrong when you're using a single action gun. Maybe there something struck the hammer accidentally, or there was a mechanical malfunction. But yeah, as you said, the the footage of the the rehearsal shows that his finger was on the trigger uh, right while he was practicing on set. And that's. That's really the key bit. Uh, you know, he had said that he never pulled the trigger, which, right. uh, you know, I suppose in his mind, that might be a different action than what occurred. But you can see in that video uh, and people can go, uh, you know, those listening on the podcast can go and uh, head over to the reload dot com where you, there's analysis piece. It's free for everyone uh, that includes the video that we're talking about. But uh, you can see that when he draws his gun his finger is clearly on the trigger of the re- the revolver in these rehearsal shots. Right. And he's you can also see him at one point actually um, with his finger on the trigger, pull the hammer back and release it, which um, in a single action revolver, if you have that trigger depressed, and I have one here for those watching on YouTube, um, I have an example of a single action revolver. If you keep your finger on that trigger and you pull that hammer back and you release it, it's going to fall forward. And if there's a round in that cylinder, it's going to um, ignite that round. And now this gun that I have here is I've cleared personally. I've gone through and uh, looked through the cylinder and made sure that the gun is in fact unloaded. Uh, which nobody did, of course, on that set, unfortunately, uh, did not do the proper checks to make sure that the gun was not loaded with live ammunition, right. which it clearly ended up being. But the issue you'll see in that video of Baldwin drawing his pistol and then uh, with his finger on the trigger, manipulating that hammer, pulling it back and releasing it, that's going to fire a shot if there's a live round in there. And the reason that happens is because the trigger is the only thing that keeps um, those sears in place. If the trigger is not pulled and you cock that hammer, it's going to get caught at three different points on a single action revolver, Um, uh, including, you know, full cock, which is where you want to fire it. There's half cock which is where you can freely rotate the cylinder to load and unload it and check that it's clear. And then there's also a safety notch uh, or quarter cock, some people call it, which is very, engages very quickly. You can't really pull it back very far before some sort of sear engages on, on one of these firearms. And the difference is when you, and it doesn't take a lot of pressure but when you're when you're touching that that trigger, it's going to disengage all those sears, and nothing is holding back that hammer. So if you pull it back, and then you release it, it's going to fall forward, and it's right. going to 
if you pull it back far enough, it's going to fire around. And it certainly seems like, I don't know about you, Jake, but that certainly seems the most um, likely explanation for how this happened. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. We've sa we said that when we first covered the story that mm -hmm. of all the scenarios that could have happened, that that's, this was always the most likely thing we thought right. could happen. That There was just some negligence on his part where his finger got inside the trigger guard and depressed the trigger and had a negligent discharge. Um, for folks that aren't maybe familiar with the, how a single action revolver works, that was a good demonstration. Um, a lot uh, people, many people don't know just how uh, easy a trigger can be pulled on a single action revolver. It's not mm -hmm. quite like the semi-autos that we're, most people are familiar with these days. It's a much lighter trigger. So even if he didn't intend to have his trigger in there, if you put just enough pressure, it's a pretty crisp and easy break on one of those revolvers and you can easily yeah. have an, a negligent discharge if you're not careful. And that's where there may be some disconnect between, in his own mind, in Alec Baldwin's right. mind, between right. uh, pulling a trigger and just having your finger on the trigger. Uh, but in the case of a single action revolver, there's, you know, there's not that much difference. It doesn't take very much pressure uh, to actually initiate that trigger. And when, if you're doing it without, you're doing it before you've even cocked the gun, you're not going to probably uh, recognize what you're doing if you don't understand how the gun works. Sure. Um, you know, normally if you don't have your finger on the trigger and you pull that hammer back, it's going to, uh, you're going to feel it and hear it cock in the different sears. And then, uh, and then you have to pull the trigger to release it. But if you've got that trigger push pressed even just a little bit, you're not going to hear anything or recognize anything as you're pulling it back, except for the cylinder turning if you go far enough. Um, so you can, and you can see him in the video, you can see him with his finger on the trigger, pulling that hammer back and releasing it, which would fire the, a gun if it would set off around if there were one in there. Now, I, I guess in this these rehearsal shots that we have video of, there must not have been a live round at that point, but somehow uh, a live round ended up in there, or maybe it was a mix of dummy rounds and live rounds. And uh, he just sort of Russian roulette situation. He didn't get that live round until later when he was doing this, uh, this action. But, you know, it, that's the only thing that really fits with what he's described and what we're seeing on that video, which is that, you know, he talked about never pulling the trigger, but he talked about, cocking that hammer and releasing it while well, pulling that hammer back. Uh, the only way that it's going to get released, if you, like you, you don't, it doesn't go very far before catching that quarter cock or that safety uh, notch. That's, you know, it's a tiny amount uh, before you'd have to pull the trigger in order to get it to move anywhere uh, back forward. And so his explanation fits with what we're seeing in that video in terms of it being a result of his finger being on the trigger while he manually cocks the, the hammer and releases it. Yeah. Um, and just to be clear to everyone, everything else we've covered on this scenario still stands, even though we have this new evidence of him with his finger on the trigger. There's, of course, several things down the chain where things went wrong. The fact that live ammunition was anywhere near the set is still a problem. The fact that the weapons handler on set saw him rehearsing with his finger on the trigger, that seems like someone should have said, hey, buddy, keep your finger off the trigger. That's part of weapon safety. Um, so obviously several things had to go wrong beyond just what has come to light in this video. Um, it's just that now we have a little more insight into what happened. Right, exactly. I mean, this was the result of multiple mistakes by multiple people. That's how a tragedy like this happens, yeah. uh, generally speaking. And, you know, in this case, certainly there should not have been live ammunition. It's still not clear how it got on set or into that gun. And then the three people handled that gun at least before that shot was fired. You know, the armorer who loaded it, the um, producer on set who was responsible for handling for handing it to Alec Baldwin and then Alec Baldwin himself. None of those people apparently did a proper safety check where they've opened up the uh, cylinder of the gun and actually look through to see if there was any ammunition in there and then... Um, if there was to ensure that it was actually blanks or dummy rounds. I mean, in this case, they're rehearsing a scene 
for B-roll. It's effectively how Alec Baldwin had described it. So there really should not have been any ammunition in there, whether it's dummy rounds or not. There's no reason to to do that. Uh, but this set was clearly uh, a, a set where they were rushing and cutting corners and that led to a lot of safety violations, even beyond what happened with these guns. And then you also have the fact that somebody was standing in the line of fire while he was handling a firearm on set, which is another thing that should not have happened. They, you can set up a shot to where a gun is not pointed at crew. Uh, in, if you need to uh, have a shot where the gun is pointed at the camera, you can still do that without getting anyone, um, putting anyone in danger. There's no one behind my camera, for instance, when I'm handling this gun, but, uh, you know, none of those things were done. And, uh, it, and, and it's really like, a, it's not just Alec Baldwin's fault, right? right? It's not just one person's fault, uh, that this happened. We don't, you know, there's no news on charges or anything like that yet. They're still waiting on some forensic evidence and so forth, uh, apparently to, make final decisions on, on the criminal aspect of all this, but the set was fined, uh, six figures, the largest fine that they could receive by, from the state for, you know, the production company that made this movie, uh, for all the safety violations. And then, you know, to me, I think bottom line, the ultimate problem was complacency. Yep. You know, th these things happen. These safety violations happen because, um, people get complacent about, Firearms. You see this, uh, you know, I'm a certified firearms instructor and you see this all the time with people who handle guns um, and never have issues. I've never, nothing's ever gone wrong to this point. I can be a little less, you know, so it's always gone the way I thought it would. Um, so these safety rules are redundant. Maybe I don't need to follow every single one of them every time, but, um, you know, you realize why they're redundant uh, right. when something like this happens. And Alec Baldwin talked about it at length, you know, how he described how he would normally do things on set, which is like you just assumed or trusted that a gun he was handed was actually um, safe or, you know, had the right load in it and never uh, decided to have that verified either by himself. And there's, you know, there's reasons why. You might not want the actors themselves to always be the ones verifying whether uh, the gun is set up properly or not. But sure. uh, at the same time, you also can have the armor come uh, come in and show everyone involved that the gun is set up properly. And that clearly didn't happen in this case and could have been something that was done. Should it probably should be the standard practice in the industry um, instead of just oh, I trust them to do it. I don't need to verify anything. So, you know, it, that had worked for his whole career until it didn't work. Right. And that's the problem. Yeah, you know, I think that's the biggest takeaway from a, a tragic situation is that you know, the, the rules of firearm safety just always apply. Um, even on a movie set, you know, it's easy, as you said, folks can easily get complacent, especially if you're an actor, you don't think you're responsible maybe for a lot of the stuff that goes on before the shot. Um, but yeah, the, the rules of firearm safety are, you're always responsible. Even if you're, like you said, the actor who, who doesn't typically handle the firearm, it's not that hard to learn how to check a cylinder to see if something's loaded. It's not that hard to learn the rules of keeping your finger out of the trigger guard. Um, and that, I, this just applies to all of us, not just actors. So it's, it's easy for things to go wrong if you get complacent and, and when they do go wrong, obviously it can be a terrible situation. So, yeah, you have to have the proper respect for. The guns that you're handling, even if they're yep. blank firing prop guns, you know, those can be dangerous as well. And, you know, when you're when you're inherently using guns in a, in a more dangerous scenario like filmmaking, where you're pointing guns at people or at least having, uh, you know, you know, uh, this a setup where that could be necessary for the film. Then if you're going to do that, you have to follow an even stricter standard of of gun safety to ensure that the gun really is unloaded. It really doesn't have live ammunition on set or in the gun. And, uh, you know, the, the, and that you have several redundancies for uh, a situation where a live round does get loaded into the gun. Like we saw here. Well, if, if this had shot had been set up in a way that nobody was behind, you know, no one, none of the crew were in the line of fire of that gun. This wouldn't have resulted in somebody's death. 
Right. You know, so that's that's why like the redundancies are necessary. They were relying on the fact that no one should have live ammunition on the set or that if it ever did make it on set, that somebody somebody along that chain of custody would check the gun and realize that it was in there. Uh, and But both of those things failed. And uh, you could have had another redundancy and not having the crew behind that, that camera, which was in the line of fire uh, for this scene. But uh, and that would have prevented the, this tragedy from occurring, too. But, you know, they just didn't. The first two levels of safety failed, and then they didn't do the third one. Uh, that you know, just off the top of my head, as as something that's uh, uh, another possibility, and and uh, you know, it, it resulted in, in somebody's death that was completely unnecessary. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's that, it's that terrible. situation all around. Yeah, it really is, and uh, you know, I feel for everybody involved. Um, you know, Alec Baldwin didn't intend to hurt anyone. Right. He didn't. He'd done things the way he had always done them. It's just that the way things are done, apparently on these sets, in some cases, are not safe. Not safe enough, at least. So anyway, that's uh, that's all we have for this week's episode. Um, we appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, we, we will be back next week with more great podcasting. And um, uh, so if you want to get this podcast a day early, make sure you Check out um, thereload.com for membership options. We've got monthly memberships. We've got a yearly membership that's uh, effectively gives you two months for free. We've got lifetime memberships for people who want to go above and beyond to support our reporting. Uh, this is completely reader funded. Uh, we are an independent publication. We have no, uh, you know, we're not owned by some big conglomerate or whatever all we get to run this place is the money that we receive from our readers and so in the form of these memberships so it's vital to our existence uh and we are extremely grateful to our members and in fact hope to have another one on the show uh in the near future it's another perk you get uh, in addition to exclusive access to dozens hundreds of members only posts on the reload.com and uh, commenting privileges as well. So, uh, and we'll have to do a, we'll have to do a Q and a Q&A again soon. I think people, people enjoyed that last one. We'll, we'll have to set another one up soon. So we'll, uh, we'll be in contact with our members out here to get some good questions, especially with things like the Supreme court uh, gun carry ruling coming up, uh, you know, in the, in the midterm elections, uh, you know, and, and all this ATF uh, stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, the last uh, last couple of weeks here, so um, look look out for that in your Sunday newsletter for for our members, our exclusive Sunday newsletter, and uh, we'll be back next week. 